morning, Freedom Church, and welcome back to our preaching series. Uh, my name's Chris, if you've not met me. Uh, we are in our preaching series on the church. We've been looking at the minute at lots of images and pictures that show who the church is, how she functions, and how she relates uh, to, to each other and to Christ. Uh, we've looked so far at God being uh, the building, the place where God's manifest power is most shown. We've looked at the fact that he, we are the body of Christ and we function all together perfectly with Christ at the head. We looked at how we're a household and a, the family of God. And last week, Chris was looking at how we are the flock of God. And today we're looking at a, a fantastic image, uh, which is used in lots of areas of the Bible, actually. There's lots of references to this. But just as Chris said last week, there are over 90 different images or pictures or metaphors as to who we are as the church. Uh, and today I'm looking at an area, I wanna just show a video to start off. I'm looking at the bride of Christ, that's who we are as the church. And uh, Andrew Wilson's got an excellent three and a half minute video that I wanted to show before I kicked off on this preach. So I'll see you after that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white and spotless. She gets presented to him, and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands, they make promises, to have and to hold, for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one. And all this is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. God says we are righteous in his sight. And we walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. 
Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread and wine. We express our physical union through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one. This is about that. Wasn't that excellent? I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, there you have it. The Bride of Christ in three and a half minutes. That's the shortest preach I've ever had to do. So I hope you've been blessed this morning. God bless. We'll see you soon. You wish, obviously. Um, no, I want to just look at a few points uh, around this idea that Andrew's been looking about and who we are as the Bride of Christ. Uh, and so I've just got four things that I want to be looking at. Four things, yeah, uh, that I want to be looking at. And I want to start by looking at the proposal. And you know what? We know every good wedding uh, has to start with a proposal, doesn't it, somewhere? And I was really fortunate to grow up in a church where uh, the men exhibited these quite extravagant proposals to their future wives. And uh, although I think probably it got a little bit competitive between them, I think it was really helpful for me to understand that this is such a significant moment and it's worth being prepared for and it's worth being extravagant uh, in, in this proposal. And uh, I know for me, I remember very acutely uh, coming to Tori's dad and asking him for his blessing uh, to marry his daughter. And I then uh, went to planning this proposal where I rang up her boss and I asked her boss if she could get the weekend off work uh, without her knowing. And I borrowed a friend's car and I drove from Leeds to Birmingham uh, with a bunch of flowers and I picked her up and she had no idea I was turning up. And so it was all this big surprise. And uh, I told her we were obviously going away for the weekend on an adventure and we went to Edinburgh. And uh, I'd had all these plans of uh, nice restaurants, a walk around a lock, uh, even a home-cooked meal, uh, ending with the theatre on the Saturday evening. And then after the theatre, the plan was to walk uh, up the high street in Edinburgh. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, and to propose to Toria. And I have to be honest, lots of you know the story. It didn't quite go to plan. But the main thing was that she said yes. Uh, and I get to spend the rest of this life that I have here on earth with the woman that I absolutely adore. Um, but I wanted to talk about the proposal that we have from one who is far more extravagant than we could ever be in his proposal to his bride. And I think just culturally speaking, we often miss uh, some of what's happening uh, because we're not from a Jewish culture. So I wanted to just talk about uh, the proposal in a Jewish culture and it helps us to understand something about how Jesus has proposed to us as the bride. So when a man and a woman were due to marry in Jewish culture, what would happen is both fathers would come together and they would negotiate what we call the bride price. You know, there was an acknowledgement that the father of the bride was giving up something very precious to him and it was a loss to their family. And so it was expected that the father of the groom, uh, or even the groom potentially, would pay a price, that they would agree a price for this bride. And once they'd come to this agreement, both fathers would drink uh, a glass of wine together and it would be from the same cup. They would seal that agreement by drinking from the cup. And then what would happen is the prospective groom would make his proposal by taking this cup of wine that his father's bought and he would drink from this cup and he would then offer it to his 
prospective wife, symbolically showing her that he wanted to make a covenant with her and he would be willing to lay down his life for her. And you know, if the woman accepted the proposal, she would take the cup and she would drink from the cup also. And that would seal the engagement by drinking from the same glass. And from that moment on, she was referred to as the one who had been bought with a price. Now, I hope you're seeing the analogy here, because I think when we look at the Last Supper and we understand Jesus' words as he spoke and he says, take this. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he takes that cup. And after they'd eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. And so here we have Jesus the night before his, his crucifixion. And he's trying to communicate to his disciples and to us, actually, his deep love for us. He's actually illustrating through the imagery of a Jewish wedding. He's comparing himself here at the Last Supper to the bridegroom who has paid a steep, steep price for his bride. And as Christ took the cup of wine during that Last Supper, as he took it in his hands and as he told his disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do you know, I'm sure the disciples, I'm sure they recognized the imagery of the marriage proposal. Here's the groom offering the cup to the one he hoped would be his future bride. So it's symbolically he wanted to make a covenant right there with her that he would be willing to give his life for her, to lay down his life for her. And we know that's what happened. And as the disciples, as they accept this cup from him, they're in effect sealing that engagement. They're signaling of it and commitment to him. And I just want to say this proposal was costly. It was extravagant. You know, we have one who was willing to leave his home. He decided to give up all of the privileges that he had in heaven. And he decided to humble himself and come to planet Earth. Why? Because his desire was he wanted to spend eternity with us. He came out of absolute love for his people. He actually came knowing what was ahead. He knew there was going to be pain. He came knowing there would be people who were going to reject his offer, his proposal. But he wanted us to understand and experience his extravagant love for, it, for us. His absolute uh, extravagance, in my opinion, was the most loving act that we have ever seen on planet Earth. And, you know, his actions require a response for us as people on planet Earth. So I want to ask you, will you drink from the cup? Will you take it and seal the proposal, seal that engagement? He says to you, will you follow me? Will you believe in who I say I am? Will you accept this proposal to spend not just this life here on Earth with him, but all of eternity with him? 
And this picture of our wedding days, this as the bride walks up the aisle, this picture of the groom, he's waiting in the church first. He is eagerly awaiting at the front of the church on the wedding day. I want to say Christ is waiting right now. And he's waiting in eager anticipation for the wedding, for the feast that is to come, to see the bride in all of her beauty. So that's the proposal. Secondly, I want to talk about the preparation, the preparation of the brides. Now, I read a story recently, and honestly, this is a true story that I read of. It's in multiple accounts of a newly married couple. And, you know, all was going well until the morning after the wedding, when the groom awoke to find himself lying beside a lady he didn't recognize. And at first he thought, this is an imposter. But slowly he realized this was indeed his new wife without makeup. And the guy was so stunned, he is now suing his poor wife to the value of £13,000 for fraud and psychological suffering. Honestly, that is a real story. And it's an astonishing story, highlighting actually some of the real problems that we have in our society around us, around image and around expectations. And I think as a culture, we are getting so skilled at the art of image management, aren't we? We take dozens of snaps before we are going to put one online on our social media. We want to make sure that all of the imperfections in the things that we're putting out online have been filtered out. But I want to say there are moments, aren't there, where literally the makeup comes off and we're seen for who we truly are. And the fear is that we, like that poor bride, won't find acceptance and love. But all we're going to find is rejection. But in Ephesians 5, Paul writes this. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the words and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you know, this is an absolutely wonderful promise, isn't it? Because unlike what we see in our culture where the bride on the wedding morning is frantically relying on makeup artists and hairdressers and tailors to make sure that she looks stunning, I want to say Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. He's not only committed to accepting his church, warts and all, but he's committed to transforming us personally into something beautiful. And I want to say the church truly is the ugly duckling story. Okay, it doesn't take an expert to see where the church looks messy or ugly. But Jesus sees us in all of our ugliness and he is committed to making us beautiful. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is what Christ does. He actually clothes us in robes of righteousness. He sends us his helper, his Holy Spirit to dwell 
in us and to bring about his beauty. He covers all of our sin and our shame. We don't need cover up. We have the Lord who has covered our sin and shame. But I just want to say as a note of caution here, just because Jesus makes us beautiful doesn't mean this allows us to be passive in this area at all. See, Jesus makes us righteous, but this Ephesians passage goes on to give the bride instructions on beautification in God's eyes. And it talks about how we become more like him. We follow his example. We love one another as the bride of Christ. We live pure lives. We use our words to build us build others up rather than tearing them down. We put others' needs before our very own and so on and so on. We have an active role to play. And you know, any bride who decided that they weren't really that bothered on their wedding day, um, I think he or, or was just disinterested in pleasing the groom, um, I think you would question whether or not she loves this groom and whether she really does want to spend the rest of her life with him. Does she actually want to please him? I want to say our proactive stance in wanting to please God comes from the love that we experience, the love that we feel from the groom. It's never out of fear. It's never out of vanity, but out of a deep love to please Jesus, our groom. And do you know, as the bride, we want to look our best for Christ. We want our hearts to be pure and our thoughts to be clean, don't we? We want our lives to be marked by grace and love as much as possible. We actually want to be preparing for his coming. And it's not so that he will love us. He's already proven his love for us on the cross, okay? But we do want to be that pure, spotless bride because he loves us. We want to please him. I just want to say, if you have any doubts at all of how beautiful the bride is, of how beautiful Christ is making you, of how Jesus sees us as the bride, I want to point us to Revelation 21. It's a very, very famous chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy uh, city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, as you read these verses, you realize this is what John is seeing. It's a vision of the new heaven and what the new earth will look like and, um, and what the new bride will look like. That's what he goes on to look at. But I think for many of us, we have this fascination with exploration. And I know we've had these images, haven't we, uh, recently coming back from Mars. And it's fascinating to see what this planet looks like. We all wanted to see what does the planet Mars look like? What's the surface look like? And the shocking thing about this is here we have this picture, this image or John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And, and my fascination with that is, man, I want to know what is this place going to be look like? And yet... The most interesting thing about this passage is that John spends eight verses talking about this new heaven and this new earth. And he goes on to speak about the bridegroom, sorry, the bride for 20 verses. Well, why? Why is this significant? Well, <clears throat> I think it's significant because it tells us what Jesus' focus and attention is on. 
It tells us what he's fascinated by, actually. And you know, lots of weddings that I've been to, including myself, my own wedding, uh, they were set in beautiful locations with huge impressive churches and amazing marquees and castles with magnificent foods. And you know, although we can be impressed by these things at the wedding, they are impressive, uh, the setting is just the backdrop to the beauty of the bride. Any groom will tell you on the day that yes, the setting's remarkable, they spent lots of time making sure the setting is right, but it pales into absolute insignificance comparative to the bride that they are gonna spend the rest of their life with. You see, the, the location is not supposed to compete or rival the bride. The setting's supposed to complement her. And so here we have God showing John a vision and unsurprisingly, God's attention is on the beauty of the love of his life, the bride of Christ. And you know, as we think about this, uh, this obsession of the beauty of the bride, it raises some challenges, I think, for us because any groom is protective over their bride. And I wonder if you feel the same way that Jesus does uh, about his brides. He is not amiss to seeing all of the challenges and the faults and the failures with this bride. Um, and to be honest, for many of us, I think we may well have been hurt by the bride. You may feel disillusioned. Um, and you may have decided, actually, for some people's stance, I know it's, well, I love Jesus, but I can't stand anything to do with the church. And I want to say this, I want to say that stance is totally incompatible with God's love um, and adoration for his brides. We see it, don't we, on the Damascus roads when uh, Paul's there and he calls out to him, says, this is, this is God calling out saying, why do you persecute me? You see, because the bride and him are now one. You actually cannot love him and not his bride. There's a huge challenge for us there. But for me, this gives me such confidence that no matter how messy church gets, how many blemishes or failures, Christ sees us and is committed to making us beautiful. And it gives me such a confidence to keep going. You know, when we struggle to see the beauty sometimes, when the fascination fades, actually, God renews, he reignites, and we see from his eyes. And as we receive his passion and his love for the brides, it rises up in us. I just want to say, Christ, church, let's, let's make sure that we're prepared when he returns. Let's not become apathetic about the return of our beautiful saviour. Thirdly, I want to just talk about covenantal promises. We all know this in marriages. I take you uh, to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, forsaking all others in sickness and in health till death do us part. And I think for, for all of us, we all understand these words and these vows. We all understand they're said on a, a wedding day. But unfortunately, I do think that in our culture, especially our culture, the idea of a vow or a promise has lost some of that credibility or its power. Uh, because I think for a lot of people in our culture, in our society, getting married is not seen as till death do us part, but more like maybe 
if we're lucky, for the next 10 years or, or until I get a bit bored uh, or until I find something better. And I just want to say we have a God who has provided covenant promises throughout Scripture uh, regarding his faithfulness to us and how he sees us. Promises that we will be a blessing to all nations. Promises that he will provide a king uh, and that he will forgive us of our sins. Promises that he will be the rescuer to us. He will actually give us his very spirit. He will give us a new heart to be able to love him in an extravagant way. And throughout history, we have seen that God keeps to his every promise that he's made to us. He is a faithful God. And that is, to be honest, even in the face of what we've seen time after time as the church, an unfaithful, adulterous bride. Do you know, we've seen Israel in the Old Testament so many times as a nation who constantly turn and worship other gods. And God's proposal to us comes uh, with cost and it comes with promises. Okay, so it isn't all one sided on his side. Actually, he asks us to forsake all other gods. And I have to be honest, as I look at my life, if we're truly honest, I know that in my life I've been distracted by other things, by other gods, potentially. Maybe the God of comfort, uh, the God of selfishness, whatever that is for you. If we really, truly search our hearts, I think all of us would say we have been distracted by other things. My soul attention on Christ has not always been easy, but I want to say that he is faithful and he has promised, hasn't he, never ever to leave us, to never stop loving us, to dwell in us and use us. He's promised to never forsake us and to provide an eternity with him. Now, I want to say as humans, we, we tend to be fairly fickle, but the good news here in the covenant promises that we have is we have a groom who cannot lie. Literally, it's impossible for him to lie to us. We have a groom who will never leave us. We have a groom that we can totally trust. You see, God sees our lives. He sees where our hearts are focused. And I want to just say this morning that if you find yourself struggling to make these vows in your heart towards Christ, if you truly search in there and you're saying, actually, I'm unable to do this. Actually, God says, come to me. Come to me. Let my spirit help you. Let me help you to live for me. Let me, um, let me reveal to you my love to you and just see how your heart grows. And so I want to encourage you to come to him. If that's you, if you recognize that actually you've lost that fascination with him, maybe there are other things distracting you, then please do come to him this morning. Finally, I just want to say that we have a lavish God. Uh, I've just read that um, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, Mackenzie Scott, has just got remarried to a high school teacher. And this teacher has, from all accounts, just become a billionaire overnight because Mackenzie Scott is worth about $53 billion. And you know, when two become one, what's hers becomes his and what's his becomes hers, which is brilliant. But as we look at this relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, I wanna say there's a stark difference 
Because when we say yes to God and we're betrothed to God, then everything that we have, uh, everything that he has becomes ours. His love, his power and his goodness become ours. In fact, as Andrew mentioned, uh, often the bride takes on the groom's surname and we get to take on Christ's name. We become Christians, don't we? But honestly, we don't really bring anything good to this equation. Um, We get to bring all of our sin and our shame and our past and Christ deals with it. In fact, he's already dealt with it on the cross. But he is such a generous God. He hasn't stopped there, even though that would definitely be enough. He lavishes us with more. He gives us gifts, uh, gifts of his Holy Spirit uh, for the building up of the bride, gifts of prophecy and words of knowledge and healing and encouragement and hospitality, all sorts of gifts that we read of in the Bible. But he doesn't stop there either. He continues to give and to give and to give. And these gifts aren't just for planet Earth. Actually, he lavishes us with unimaginable things in eternity that he promised us. He not only provides this new heaven and this new earth that we've talked about to live in, but he goes on to say that in eternity, there will be no more pain or suffering or death or sadness. You know, 53 billion that Mackenzie Scott owns is a lot. And her new husband has received a lot. But we are engaged. We're going to marry the creator God, the one who spoke creation into being. We're marrying the one who uh, has all of the universe's resources at his fingertips. And I want to say God is just not in this relationship because of what he can get out of us. Okay, he's not trying to use us or con us or dupe us. In fact, he gives us more than we could ever ask or imagine. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. He's laid down his life for us. Not because he had his arm twisted behind his back and felt like he had to, but because he loves us. I hope you're getting this message, Bride. And for me, as I think about this, as I dwell on this, knowing we have a God who's not a miser, uh, but one who honestly wants to lavish us with gifts at every uh, point, means I have the confidence to ask and to expect him to uh, provide at every opportunity. It gives me confidence and faith to be generous myself with others, knowing uh, what he's done for me. Freedom Church, I want to say, I want to conclude, we are the bride. We are deeply loved, okay? We have a groom who is waiting in absolute eager expectation to come face to face with us. He has given us everything to be able to spend eternity with us. And this love and passion displayed should cause us as a people to display a joy and a passion for him that other people should be able to see. This image of us being the bride, of being dearly loved, man, it should bring us great security and affirmation that We actually have the king over all creation pursuing us. It helps 
us to see the church as beauty when things don't go to plan. I want to say there's no place for half-heartedness or apathy when we realise the lengths that Christ has gone to and how committed to us he is. I hope that helps you this morning. God bless.